today on Ag News Daily. Uh, the founders came up with the idea of observing cows using cameras, so watching for their behavior. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Mike Pearson here, coming to you from downtown Chicago, where Delaney, we had some snow this morning. I am not surprised. We had some snow flurries last night ourselves. Nothing stuck, though, so that's the good part. It is good, and the same story is here in Chicago. Listeners, that dulcet-toned voice is that of Delaney Howell, co-host of the Ag News Daily Podcast. And Delaney, what else is going on in your world? Hmm, I can't say a whole lot is going on today, Mike. Well... That's not terrible. That's not terrible at all. No, it's not. There are things happening in the world of agriculture. When we look at the news that is impacting our listeners' daily lives, why don't you bring us up to speed on some of the headlines you're keeping an eye on today? Yeah, so I want to kick things off talking today a little bit more about the packing facilities or the processing facilities that are being shut down across the country. And again, as Mike pointed out yesterday, it's not all the facilities, but now, of course, we've got the JBS facility in Greeley, Colorado, is shutting down for two weeks, so until the end of April. We also mentioned yesterday on the podcast the Smithfield location in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, that is being shut down. And I was talking today with a veterinarian who works in the swine industry, and they cover quite a bit of territory all over the United States, helping out mostly medium to large-sized hog farms with their vet services. And he shared some really interesting news with me, Mike, or maybe not news, but just an explanation of how this will impact the hog industry very specifically. Oh, what'd you hear? Well, so... Interestingly enough, and I assume this would probably be the same for the beef industry as well, but essentially the governor of South Dakota, Kristi Noem, got a lot of pressure and felt like she had to issue a statement suggesting or recommending that this facility close down. Then the mayor of Sioux Falls followed suit and Smithfield, from what it sounds like, felt very pressured to close down to adhere to the governor and the mayor's request because they had gotten so much support when they were going through the permitting process and getting the facility set up. And again, this is just some insider information. But then I asked, you know, well, how does that impact those farms that are selling their hogs to Smithfield or Tyson or JBS or any of these facilities? And so when you have a contract with Smithfield or Tyson, for example, you are only allowed to send your hogs to those facilities if you are contract growers. So instead of being able to send your hogs to maybe the next nearest facility, you now have to worry about logistics and transportation to find another Smithfield, Tyson, JBS, whatever facility to fulfill your contracts. And so essentially it's going to be like, this is how he explained it to me, was like a flight. If you are wanting to fly to Chicago, Mike, or fly to Des Moines or wherever, and the flight is all booked up, then you have to wait for another flight or potentially drive or figure out something else so he compared it to that so it's like the flights you can only fly on that one airline to your destination but all these flights quote-unquote flights or facilities are at capacity because we're seeing facilities 
shut down. So those producers that would usually go to facility X are now having to go to facility Y and it's just really making a muck of the system. I also asked, you know, when you look at cold storage, what are the concerns there? Are we going to be able to fulfill cold storage? And he said that here within the next week is really crunch time for those cold storage facilities when they're going to be at capacity and we're not going to have anywhere else to put this meat, which will absolutely disrupt the supply chain. So interesting stuff and uh, just the transportation mess that this is creating for the protein industries in particular is going to be a long-term one, I'm yeah. afraid. I think you're exactly right. The logistical headaches created by this coronavirus are going to create a very long-term hangover. Lenny, I think you're exactly right about that. As other plants fluctuate production to try and keep up, did get word that another beef plant is implementing, uh, they're calling them rolling shutdowns. Basically, they're putting half of their line out of work so they can keep half the facility healthy and the other half working, and then they'll alternate. So if a group of employees were to get sick in one half of the workforce, that's the half that would have to go home and they could still work on a half-time basis. Those are the kind of things that I think we're going to see persist even as the rest of the economy talks about opening back up. But Delaney, you did mention something that uh, is probably positive news for U.S. pork producers. You mentioned cold storage. We're running out of places to put this pork. We're seeing cold storage capacity uh, grow just as the hog herd has grown over the past several years. And now we filled it as restaurant demand has backed down. However, we might have a way to get some space into that cold storage. Delaney, do you know what that way might be? I don't know. Tell me. Chinese pork import. So we got news that China has imported a record monthly volume of pork in the month of March. They imported 291,000 metric tons. To put that in perspective, last year, African swine fever was just taking off in that country uh, in the month of March, and they imported 127,000 metric tons, so well over double what they were importing last year. U.S. pork comprised 168,000 tons of the 300,000, 391,000 metric, so we're just about a short half of all of Chinese pork imports. And they did mention that their pork, the Chinese mentioned that their pork imports in the first two months of 2020 came to 560,000 tons, up 158% from last year. So we are seeing the Chinese step in and make some purchases. The value of farm goods that China purchased in the first quarter, so January, February, March, totaled $5.05 billion. So that would be... Oh, I can't do that quick math in my head, Delaney. What's five billion of four billion? What's what? Ten billion would be. Well, I'm trying to figure out the percentage of their forty billion dollar goal. Oh, I see. If they can, if the Chinese continue to make purchases of American ag goods at this pace, they are on track to buy twenty billion dollars worth of farm goods. So they're on track to fulfill about half of their phase one commitment as things stand right now. The good news for pork producers is they're definitely taking a lot of interest in that sector. They're trying to rebuild their protein supplies after African swine fever decimated the industry. However, a note of caution, they're not making purchases of all protein. Um, beef imports in 
predominantly, and, and this was news to me and listeners, if, if you've been to China or are familiar with Chinese eating patterns, back this up. This comes from Reuters. Uh, beef consumption in China still mainly happens at restaurants. Uh, it's not a huge food that is purchased and cooked at home. And with all of the restaurants closed, coronavirus, naturally beef demand kind of fell off a cliff the, uh, the first three months of this quarter. So they do see beef imports being light in China. Yeah, and to echo that, we saw just some Chinese export numbers come out this week, looking at export and import data for the month of March. And we were expecting, or the trade was expecting, exports and imports to fall pretty drastically. But exports fell just 6%, which was expected to be 14%. Well, imports slipped just 0.9%, and they were expecting to slip about 9.5%. So it's definitely looking like China is coming to the buying table, maybe not necessarily from the United States, but they are continuing to make purchases. Mm, Okay, so that's good news. It is good news. Hopefully some of that pie will come to the United States. Right, right. Come on and fulfill your obligations, China. Really, as I mentioned, they need to about double their ag purchases to hit their targets under the phase one of the agreement. Um, We've got an interesting story here, and I'm still kind of digging into it. Listeners in the pork industry might be more familiar with this than a lot of us outside of the industry. But there is a proposal around to ensure the continued free movement of shipping containers to international markets of critical food and ag products. The National Pork Producers Council has come together with 79 other ag associations requesting that this continued free movement of shipping containers happen. Uh, This was a letter to USDA Secretary Sonny Perdue and Economic Council Director Larry Kudlow, And basically, they're asking for help with the Federal Maritime Commission. Right now, there are, as Delaney has mentioned, detention and demerit penalties on U.S. agriculture products by ocean carriers and marine terminal operators due to this uh, coronavirus thing. And um, they're saying that this is causing ongoing injury to U.S. agriculture and forestry injuries. And these penalties are unjustified, even though they are very real, given the challenges posed by coronavirus. So there is a lot of concern about how these things are assessed, these detention and demerge fees, and whether or not these are, in fact, uh, kosher during a time of international crisis. All right. Well, switching tracks here back to some more nationally focused news, specifically COVID focused. Congress is starting back up starting the week of May 4th. And when Congress takes up again, we saw Congresswoman Gillibrand wants to move forward with some new legislation as kind of the next phase for the stimulus package, which would include, I thought this was very interesting, and I'm not sure how they're going to orchestrate this, and maybe it will never excuse me, never make it to a vote, but she wants to include a provision aimed at rescuing small ag production, who is basically farms facing financial ruin. She wants to do this by forgiving up to $250,000 in farm loans for farms that have operating capital, debt, or other pieces of, you know, emergency loans, etc., that would cover all of their farm debt. It would be essentially a one-time payment or a one-time debt forgiveness program, but the requirement would be that if you do get this 
debt forgave that you would be operating for at least an additional two years. She went on to note that there are about 39,000 farms that would qualify for her 250,000 debt forgiveness program and said that this would just be another way for them to help rural America. But I really don't know how this would get paid for, what fund it would come out of, how realistic something like that really would be. It's just fake helicopter money, Delaney. I've got just one other story to talk about before I am ready to chat markets today. And this is a story that is a return to normalcy. Delaney, yesterday was Monday. Do you know what typically happens on a Monday as we get into the growing season? We have our crop progress reports. Exactly. Boy, it feels like it's been 100 years since we've talked about crop progress as this coronavirus has filled up all of the news. But yesterday was the first crop progress report of the 2020 planting season. And we do see that 3% of the nation's corn crop has been planted as of Sunday, April 12th. Uh, So far, that's right on track with last year's progress and is pretty well on track with the five-year goal of 4%. Texas is the big leader. They're 63% planted versus 53% a year ago. Uh, 6% of winter wheat has headed just ahead of the 5% we saw last year. And winter wheat's good to excellent rating is unchanged. From the previous week, it is holding steady at 62%. Let's see, jump down the figures, golly gosh, not really. We will start to see some trends in this planting season as more of these planting or crop progress reports come out. But Delaney, I thought that was good. We finally have uh, crop progress reports to chat about. It's not just coronavirus. Yes, and I'm guessing a lot of those acres that have been planted are in Texas and some of the southern areas because as we know, the Midwest and Northern Plains definitely aren't going to be planting probably anytime soon. Yeah, it's going to be a minute before we see planters rolling in earnest. Our good friend uh, Jeremy Miner from Kruger Seeds, who we've had on the podcast, did a little, uh, oh gosh, a webinar, not a webinar, but a little video this morning from a field showed that soil temps in east central Iowa were still well below 40 degrees or, or well below 50 degrees, closing in on, on 48 degrees. And that cold wind this morning definitely helping keep things uh, a little chilly down there on the ground. Absolutely. But Mike, I think that teases up nicely to chat markets. Why don't you talk us through today's? For sure, Delaney Hell in the grains, we did see a move to the downside yet again, pretty well across the board. Corn and wheat were hit as well as well as soybeans. It, it, it was truly across the board. May corn was down five and a half cents at 326 even. December new crop down three and a quarter to close at 346 and a half. In soybeans, that May contract was off seven and a quarter cents at 847 even. November new crop down a nickel, closed at 865 and a half. In Chicago wheat, that May contract was off six and a quarter cents, closed closing at 5.48 and three quarters. December new crop down four cents, closing the day at 5.62 and a half. Looking over at the world of livestock, we did see a bounce in live and feeder cattle today. Yesterday's extreme uh, limit moves to the downside across the board were maybe overdone on the cattle sector, which isn't being impacted as much as production shortfalls as the pork sector. April live cattle were up $2.70 at 93.70. The June contract up $2.42.5 at 83.80. Feeder cattle April up $1.3750, 116.40. The May up 40 cents, closing at 114.85. Looking at the lean hog market, we've got mixed trade today with the April contract up 75 cents at 45 
$1,565. The May, the $1.5750, closing at, excuse me, closing down the $38 even. Looking over at the dairy market in Class 3 milk, we've got a little green on the screen. The April, May, up six cents at 11.04. Delaney Hall, why don't you tell us who we're talking to for today's Tech Tuesday? Well, we are heading across the pond to chat dairy with Aiden Connolly, the CEO of Cane This, a dairy AI program. For today's Tech Tuesday interview, we are heading across the pond, sort of across the pond, I suppose you could say, chatting with Aidan Connolly, the CEO of Canthus, which is a company based in Ireland as well as California. Aidan, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. Thank you, Delaney. So let's chat 10,000-foot view. What is the company Canthus? Yeah, so Canthus was formed, as you said, uh, by... Um, three founders, one from Canada, two from Ireland, and uh, the founders came up with the idea of observing cows using cameras, so watching for their behavior, feeding behavior, and general behavior, and then using artificial intelligence to convert that into into um, messages and into actions that you can deliver to the telephone or smart device of a producer. Um, Cantus actually came from Cantus is the Latin for the corner of your eye, and uh, founders had too much time in their hands, so they <laughs> thought about putting AI or artificial intelligence into the word Cantus, and that's why we came with the name Cantus. So Cantus is, uh, is today a company that installs cameras into dairy barns, watches cows 24 hours a day, and then tells you uh, how, what, what and what, how they've been eating. Now, this is fascinating. Aiden, when you think about the behavior of animals that can tell us something, what specifically are we watching for? Are, we, are you just watching for you know, not cleaning the bunk completely? Is it pacing? Is it, though, I guess, what behaviors are you keeping an eye out for? Yeah, thanks, Mike. So, in essence, what you, um, of course, since cameras can see everything, um, we digitize the images so that they are basically computed within the camera itself. It's not as though we're taking pictures from the farm. We, we analyze it all within the, within the barn. But initially what we're focused on is absolutely feed bunk management. So how well do you deliver your feed? What time do you deliver it at? What time do you clean it away at the end of the day? And also how often do you do push-ups? And we timestamp those events to let producers know how well they're doing compared to what they had decided, in other words, what their program was. Uh, sometimes, of course, workers get distracted by other things that are going on. What's really interesting from our perspective is those same cameras can watch the cows as well. And although we're not drilling that down into individual level, we are looking at group behavior and seeing how much time do they spend eating, drinking, standing. So we're giving an awful lot of insights into some of the critical parameters that drive milk production. Very interesting. And so I guess to take a step back, looking at kind of your three locations, you're in Dublin, you're in California, and you're in Ottawa, Canada. Explain to us or share with us, is there a difference in dairy production or the way that you set up your systems between each of those three areas? A huge difference, unfortunately. So <laughs> that introduced a lot of complications initially. 
And we have, as a company, decided we are going to focus on California. Um, the Irish model is quite small. Um, the houses typically are not standardized. We, we have some really good dairy farms, but they typically are running on a pasture basis. Um, Canada, of course, is, um, is under the, the Canadian regime. The reality was the founders were from Canada and from, from Ireland, and so it made sense to have bases there. And that's where the people doing the programming and writing all of the uh, the rocket science type of stuff, that's where they're based. But in terms of customers, California, clearly with a concentration of dairy cows, the fact that those dairy farms have been replicated all over the world in places like Brazil and Argentina, Mexico, Saudi Arabia, even China, Clearly, that's the right place for us to start. So that's why, uh, that's why from a sales and marketing perspective, our team in California is in Visalia and they are visiting directly with dairy farms out there. So when you think about the expansion of this, I mean, we're seeing dairy, at least in the U.S., undergo a pretty much a crisis period right now as, as milk prices continue to falter. How does this technology allow producers to manage their costs a little bit better as they're thinking about surviving these uh, slim times? Well, my goodness, Mike, uh, your heart would have to go out to people who are being forced to pour milk into drains, and, you know, that's not a good situation um, I happen to believe that there are structural changes that need to take place in the U.S. industry, and too much of the milk has been sold traditionally as bulk milk. Uh, processing does not, um, further processing and value added does not take place on the farm, and that's left us very exposed in the current situation. You know, who could have imagined at the beginning of the year? I think this last year, 2019, was the first year Americans spent more money in restaurants than they did on food they consumed at home. And uh, we would have expected that to continue. Instead, we've seen a drop of between 30 and 70% in restaurant spending in the last two months. So, you know, you have to decide if this is if this change is going to be forever. I, I hope and believe that it is not. Uh, we will return to, to uh, the ways that we were before, albeit with hopefully some positive changes. But I'd also... Um, Add to that that clearly all of these changes, clearly all of these changes from a from a, a, a business perspective, I think are going to drive increasing digitization. So digital become, will become more and more important, and of course, Cantus is a is a fundamental part of that. Looking at the structure that Kinthus uses, the model you use with implementing this camera technology, how do you set it up for a dairy farm? Is there an ideal size of a farm that works best for this model? And how many cameras do you have to have to monitor herds of cattle? So we're, we're very much focused on larger farms. Uh, by larger, that's typically farms with 1,000 to 2,000 cows minimum. Uh, of course, no maximum in terms of uh, where we would go to. Right. But within a barn, you would typically be using a camera um, every 100 feet. So um, these cameras can actually cover a lot of distance uh, from what you can see. It, it allows you to see a lot of cows uh, with a limited number of cameras, which is very different than some of the initial, the initial models and research that we worked with. We did have a challenge that the infrastructure, the hardware we were having to invest in was huge. So we're, we're in a very nice position yeah. now where we've the reduced one, the that one cost. And in fact, we continue to reduce it. And Aiden, so then looking back then at, at current day, 
share with us, I know you said that you've put out some information on your website, you've shared some information with your producers, but obviously this is slim times. We were expecting restaurant demand to continue this year, especially in the United States, which drives a lot of milk and cheese and dairy production. How are you, you adjusting or... with COVID-19? What are you telling your dairy producers to think about as ter- in terms of their operations? Yeah, the, the, the structural changes we talked about earlier, obviously, are longer term things. And I've talked to people about trying to see what's being done in New Zealand, etc., to add more value to milk and milk products, to get more things from the milk, um, more special proteins, etc. But we had a really interesting, um, really interesting demand from some of our producers. They said, look, Aidan, you're seeing a lot of things around the world. You're seeing a lot of people doing good things. Could you and uh, Dr. Bramble, Tyler Bramble, who's my colleague, could you put together a call where we just have access to maybe discussing some ideas from people in best practices on farm of things that are working during COVID and could work after COVID? So we did that call last Friday. Um, We had actually got uh, a Californian veterinarian. We had a Californian producer. Uh, So they gave very practical advice of what was happening on their farm. And then I added into it this, if you like, uh, perspective globally as to some of the seven lessons, as I called it, that I felt people could benefit from. Um, So seven lessons. The first one is it's time to embrace online. And I think a lot of people say, oh, yeah, online. And I said, no, this time you really need to go online. This time you really need to ask yourself the question, do I absolutely need to go and meet my suppliers do I absolutely need to have salespeople coming onto my farm? Do I absolutely need to be meeting the people who I sell my milk to or sell my produce to? Um, so in other words, it's not to eliminate the human contact, but it certainly to start reducing it. And in the time of COVID, we're effectively, you know, people are not going to farms. How much of that can we continue Bye-bye. doing through uh, many of the tools that we started to see, Skype, uh, Zoom, uh, hangouts, etc. The, these are all things that I think all of us are becoming more comfortable with. Um, I said to them um, that one that somebody had used the phrase to me that you shouldn't let a single employee come back post-COVID, post-coronavirus with the same skill set. There are so many things you can do online to train yourself and retrain yourself. If you think of things like um, the LinkedIn, YouTube, um, what you can learn through Google, or even some of the more specialized school classes that are run, which are really, really fantastic. Um, obviously, Khan Academy, edX, uh, Coursera, all of these are running courses that are just so easy to, to take. And you can learn more about biology or chemistry or engineering or electricity or whatever it is that you management clearly being another great one to spend some time on. Uh, the third one was um, maybe it's time to bury the hatchet. So consider who you've fallen out with. <laughs> over the years or who your parents or grandparents fell out with. And really for, for producers, I think we can just achieve a lot more for friends with all of the people in our industry and try to find ways to work together. I think that this year, as uh, a fourth, we're going to see greater loyalty. Um, people who've been, you've been loyal to during coronavirus, I believe are going to be more loyal to back to you. That could include customers or indeed it could include employees and try to think about how, Maybe you look at your team, if this is the time during a crisis to move some people on, do it, but equally recognize those that are very loyal to you 
and you've been loyal to them and try to build the strongest team you can. My fifth one was um, look to strip costs out of your system. Can you do it cheaper? Can you do it better? Um, so that's always a good thing to do during a crisis is to, to look at where improvements could be made to continue to, to bring your costs down. Uh, achieving work-life balance is something I think a lot of us have seen. We've always assumed that living on a farm gives you work-life balance, but many of us through through um, emails and uh, all of these various text messages and ways we can communicate, it just feels as though life is filling up even when you get home from the from, from your work. And finally, uh, number seven, what well, change is good. <laughs> this came from a conversation I'd had with a colleague who, whose uh, business, they're an agribusiness, and they kept changing every two or three years when they brought more consultants in to talk to them. And each time the consultants um, made recommendations, they made fairly substantive changes. So I said to him, you know, are these changes good for you? Do you like them? Because I presume most people, most of us don't like change. And he said, look, Aiden, change is always good. It always brings new energy. It always brings new ideas and eventually brings new passion. So you have to embrace this, even though it's not something that you particularly enjoy when it's when it's forced on you. So those were kind of the seven ideas that we came through. And uh, we had a lot of producers on the call. A lot more um, have been looking at that, the Kainta's website to, to, to get copies of the blog that I wrote on the same subject. And I think it's just trying to be positive in a time where where there's a lot of negativity out there and where obviously a lot of people are struggling. Absolutely. I mean, I, I myself find it hard sometimes to maintain a positive attitude, but it's nice to see businesses and folks like you putting out information like that to keep us all with lifted spirits. Aiden, before I let you go, if some of our listeners would like to read those seven steps for themselves, is it available on your website and how can they find that? Absolutely. It's available on Kaintus, so that's C-A-I-N-T-H-U-S dot com. Um, I carries on my LinkedIn blog, uh, LinkedIn page as well. That's Aiden J. Connolly uh, on LinkedIn. You'll find me pretty easily. I think I've got 22,000 people that, that, that say they're following me anyway, have ticked the follow box on LinkedIn. And, of course, um, in Kaintus, our, our, our plan is to continue just to try to where we see things that people are doing well to try to share those with others. Um, I think that's the way we all get better. Absolutely. Well, Aiden, thank you so much for joining today. This has been fascinating stuff. I've enjoyed it. Thank you, guys. Well, again, a big thank you there to Aiden Connolly of Kane. This interesting stuff that they're doing for AIing artificial intelligence not ai as an in artificial insemination in the dairy industry mike good thing you clarified that delay there's already a very well established ai in the dairy industry there certainly is i thought i better add that in there you bet. Well, listeners, we're always adding stuff in here at the Ag News Daily Podcast, and you can click on our website on any of our past episodes. Go to agnewsdaily.com. They'll all show up there, as well as other podcasts by fantastic agricultural podcasters who are all a part of the Global Ag Network. Or always visit us on social media. Let us know what's happening. Let us know when you expect to see those planter wheels turning in your neck of the woods. Look us up on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Ag News, Daily, Ag News Daily. With that, Delaney, should we let the listeners go? Let's let them go.